You're a funny guy, Rob. Oh, thanks, Craig. Um, we feeling good this morning? I, I know the extra hour of sleep is, is a thing. Um, a couple years ago, though, when we started having kids, I realized this isn't the greatest day when you've got young kids at home because they're up at like 4 a.m. You're like, just sleep. Come on. So if you're in that boat, hey, I'm with you. I understand. But I'm glad we're here. I'm excited for this morning and being able to share together. So a few years ago, I attended a Justin Timberlake concert, and I never thought I would begin a sermon that way, but stick with me. I bought some tickets for my wife, okay? So it was a gift for her, and I just happened to attend. And this arena was just, I mean, filled with thousands of women and like two guys. But I have to tell you, JT, that man is talented. Like, I, I was amazed. I was blown away. So thousands of people are together. They are singing. They are clapping. They're dancing. I mean, everybody's having a good time. And there was this moment, and I realized, this is a picture of worship. Thousands of people being led in one accord toward a common purpose. Last year, I did something a little manlier when I went up to Lambeau Field and watched my Green Bay Packers defeat the Detroit Lions the second week of the season. And something, something happened in that game. It, it was interesting. I had a similar experience. Coach Matt LaFleur, he just started raising his arms, waving his arms at one point in the game. And then the players followed. And then all of a sudden, 70,000 loud screaming fans, I mean, they were just going nuts at, at the top of our lungs. And we were chanting in unison, we were being loud, we were applauding, e even before and after the game when we came somewhat close to some of these players we idolized, we were a little starstruck, and again I realized this is a picture of worship. Now this year the Packers are more of a picture of worship as lament. Um, <laughs> And we're going to talk about lament next week. So, I mean, Colts fans, you, you know where I'm at. You understand. <laughs> it's, it's been a rough year. I get it. But the point is, worship is all around us. And it, and it has been for centuries. It's, it's a part of our culture. Whether it's a sporting event or, or a team or, or a musician or an idolized celebrity. Or perhaps uh, a desired status in society or, or the, the accumulation of wealth. Worship is everywhere. Worship matters. There's a writer by the name of David Foster Wallace, and he has no theological agenda whatsoever or any faith connection, but he observed this. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. So today, as Rob mentioned, we are beginning a four-week series, and we're going to be discussing some worship matters. And I'm so excited for this series, and I have been for weeks and, and months. I've probably told everybody that I've come in contact with, we're going to be talking about worship these, these next four weeks. And, and I think we're going to begin to unpack maybe some questions that we have about worship. Like, what is it? Who is it for? When and where do we worship? How do we worship? And why does it matter? I, I'm so excited. I'm so expectant for this series. But before we get any further, I have to make two statements about today and also the entire series. 
Okay, the first is this. Worship does not just happen on a Sunday morning, right? Okay, worship is not relegated to only Sunday morning, what we're doing here. Now, throughout this series, we're going to talk a lot about what we do here in corporate worship when the church gathers to praise God. But we have to recognize that worship is an everyday coming and going discipline. It's not just relegated to Sunday. The second thing I want to say is that we will not even come close to covering everything there is to say with regard to this topic. It's just too vast. It's too big. It's, it's huge. I mean, the, the brevity, the depth of what worship is. I mean, we're going to scratch the surface, but we won't say everything there is to say. And that's because worship is an inexhaustive discipline. We will never fully arrive in our understanding and in our practice of worship this side of eternity. But we're going to talk a lot about a lot of things. There's always going to be more to learn, more to grow in, and more to experience. And that's a good thing for us. You see, worship is a journey. It's, it's a path that we walk together. And so today, I just want to encourage us to stay the course. Okay? Stay the course. Because when we fix our eyes on Jesus as a worshiping community... And when we rely upon the power of the Holy Spirit, I believe that we will grow more and more into what Jesus describes in John chapter 4. We will become the true worshipers the Father is seeking, those who worship in spirit and in truth. Before we go any further, let, let me just pray over this time. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of being together. We thank you for your grace and mercy. Lord, that you are present with us. What a gift it is to come before you, to lay our offerings at your feet, to give you all the praise and glory. God, I would ask that you would continue guiding us with much discernment and wisdom as we navigate this series and we take a look at what it means to worship you in spirit and truth. We pray all this in your name. Amen. So what is biblical worship? It's a good place to start. What is biblical worship? Now, in the Bible, worship is not so much defined as it is described. Okay? It's, it's not so much defined as it is described. Worship is all throughout the Bible. And we have multiple Hebrew and Greek words that are translated to our English word worship and many, many other words that describe the ways of worshiping throughout the Bible. But I want to talk about one word, very briefly, that I believe gets us very close to the essence of biblical worship. And full, full disclosure, stick with me. I'm going to nerd out for like two minutes. Okay? All right, so stick with me. There's a word in the Bible, in the Greek New Testament, it's the most common word used for worship, proskuneo. And proskuneo combines two Greek words. It, it combines this word pros, which means toward, and kineo, which means to show affection or, or to kiss or to show admiration. And so when we combine those two words together, we get phrases like to, to bow oneself, to, to bow and to kiss, to, to prostrate oneself. This word implies action. And when we read it in the New Testament, it can 
uh, refer to singing. It can refer to kneeling or listening or many, many other words describing worship. This word carries an overtone of submissive lowliness and deep, deep respect. And above all, when this word is used in the New Testament, it is focused specifically upon Jesus. So fast forward several hundred centuries from Bible times, and then we have this English word, uh, our English word worship, it attempts to, to capture the essence of proskuneo. Okay, but how did we get there? Worship derives from an old English word, weorthsipi. That's fun to say 10 times, weorthsipi. Okay, and at the heart of weorthsipi is this acknowledgement of worth, attributing dignity and, and respect and admiration to someone or something. And so from weorthsipi, we receive the term worthship attributing worth, from worthship, we receive our English word worship. Nerd out complete. Are you guys with me still? We're tracking? Okay, good. I'm so hyped about this series. This is going to be so much fun. Um, so based upon those words and for our purposes today and within our, our entire series, I'm going to offer a, a simple answer to our question, what is biblical worship? Worship is a response to God's revelation. Simply stated, worship is a response to God's revelation. God reveals to us and we reply. God acts and, and we are amazed. God shines and we reflect. I believe this is the heart of biblical worship. And it's such a vast discipline and unfortunately, I think sometimes we can, we can tend to box it in and, and kind of narrow our definition and understanding and our practice of it. And, and that happens from time to time. And, and I think what develops are some very real misconceptions when it comes to corporate worship in the church. And I'm not trying to be negative or anything like that. I just think it's important to name some of these things because when we do, we can begin to unbox worship and continue growing and developing and experiencing all that God has for us. So I just want to name three very common misconceptions that I often uh, hear and, and that uh, I'm uh, engaged in conversation with. Um, and the first is this. Uh, first misconception is that worship is only music, often preceding the sermon. The second is that worship is only for us and not for God. And the third is that worship is about spectating instead of participating. And again, if we remember that worship is a response, that it is active, a response to God's revelation, then I believe that we're going to break through these misconceptions quite easily and continue to expand our thinking and our understanding and our practice of worship. And I believe we'll experience the freedom of worship that God has intended for us to experience. So let me ask another question. It's a very simple question, and I need some, some participation. And I promise it's not a trick question. Who is biblical worship for? It's not a trick question. Who is biblical worship for? 
God, absolutely, yes, nailed it. Man, you guys got an extra hour of sleep, I can tell. Worship, yes, it is for God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. The who of worship matters. Now, this may seem very elementary, right? But I think it's really important to recognize the who of worship and talk about it just for a second. In Exodus chapter 8, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. In Isaiah 42, 8, the prophet records these words. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. And from these verses, we can see that God desires our worship and that it is reserved for him alone. And I think we can also gather that it's one of our highest privileges to bring our worship before the Lord. And when we worship God, it is both a, a vertical and a horizontal exercise. Okay, it's, it's upward and it's also outward. And, and I want to say it like this. When we worship God, we worship him as the object and as the subject. Okay, so if God is the object of our worship, we attribute worth to him. Okay, this is the vertical. This is the upward. Uh, when we sing and, and, and we say things, when we come together, we use first-person language like you and your. So, so we would sing, great are you, Lord. Or what we just sang, we praise you. Our focus is upward. And this is why we raise our hands, why we lift our eyes and our heads. We remember that God is the direct recipient of our praise. As the object of worship, God receives the praise, but he's not just the object, he's also the subject of our worship, okay? So this is going to be more the horizontal, the outward aspect of worship, and we, we use third-person language of he, him, and his. And we see the Apostle Paul make reference to this in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. He reiterates the same thing in Colossians 3.16. Let the message of Christ, the gospel, dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. So as the subject of worship, we convey our worship about God because worship remembers Worship recalls and it retells the mighty acts of God throughout history. And we see this all throughout the Bible as God's people are, are worshiping him together. They recall all that he has done and all that he is. And so just like them, we come and we sing and we tell about God for the benefit of each other, but also for the benefit of our very own souls. We remind ourselves of his saving grace, of, of his rescue, of, of his gift of mercy. We reenact it in communion with the bread and the juice. We retell the gospel story, the good news of Jesus. 
About a month, month and a half ago, I met with our worship and production teams, as many who could gather for a worship vision night. And one of the things that we discussed was that when we plan worship services, our aim is to proclaim the good news. Above all else, our aim in the songs, in the scriptures, the prayers, in everything that we do, our aim is to proclaim the good news that Jesus lived, he died, he rose again, he conquered sin and death, and he calls us his own. We tell the story. And we cannot retell the story enough, and we desperately need it as we journey through life in every season, in the good, the bad, everything in between. We must cling to the good news of Jesus. He is our anchor, and he is our rock. So we've asked two questions. We've talked about the what, we've touched briefly on the who, and now I want to spend some time talking about the why of worship. I really want to spend some time here. It's so important to clarify the why when we're doing something, when we're engaged in something. Why does this matter? So a few years ago, I was uh, leading worship at a church, and I began the second song of our worship set completely out of tune. Like my guitar was completely out of tune. The song before that, I had had my guitar in an alternate tuning, and I was supposed to tune it back up to where it needed to be. So I start that second song, and oh my, it was, it was awful. And so in that, in that moment, I had two choices, power through, act like everything's all right, or stop, own it, and embrace the awkwardness. What's your guess? One or two, what did I do? <laughs> oh, I stopped the song. It was, it was bad, if you were there, it was bad. And, and I just had to own it in that moment. I was like, you know what? My guitar is so out of tune. You're going to have to give me a moment. Talk amongst, amongst yourselves, you know. And it was just awkward. But I was like, we cannot continue on with this song with my instrument out of tune. Because if we had, that song would have been a train wreck. And, and it, it wouldn't have been great for anyone to endure. Now, thankfully, that doesn't happen too often. A worship team can, can usually recognize when someone or something is out of tune, and then we try to fix that as soon as possible. Because if we don't, it's going to throw everything off and we'll be completely out of balance. And if we take the idea of being in tune and we apply it to our lives, we can see that living a life out of tune is not a life well-lived. And I believe that a life well-lived is the highest form of worship. That is why worship matters, because it is forming us. Okay, worship is forming us. We worship to be aligned with Christ and to be in tune with the heart of our Savior. It's like the hymn that says, Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. And when the church gathers to worship, our, our hearts are being tuned and calibrated to the likeness of Christ. And this goes back to telling the gospel story and keeping the good news of Jesus in front of us. Because when we keep the good news of Jesus at the center of all we do, it's going to speak into every aspect of life. 
and we will be formed and ultimately transformed by the power of God. 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul speaks of this kind of formation when he says these words. We Christians have no veil over our faces. He's saying there's no barrier to God's glory. We can be mirrors that brightly reflect the glory of the Lord. And as the Spirit of the Lord works within us, we become more and more like Him. Worship isn't just something we do. It is where God does something to us. Worship isn't just something we do. It is where God does something to us. God is tuning our hearts to be more like His And don't we want that? I mean, don't we desperately need that? Whenever I take a a week of vacation and I'm away from playing guitar and and leading worship, I come back to work the the following week, and and so I, I pick up my guitar, I start playing, and I can tell I've been away for a week. Like, it's just the rhythm, the strumming pattern, like, I'm I'm just not quite there. And, And then I'll... I'll start singing a little bit, and I'll realize, you know, my vocal range just, uh, it's not where it usually is. And that's just being away from these habits and these practices for one week. You see, we are creatures of habit. We are shaped by our practices, by our rituals and repetition. And you can ask any great athlete or, or musician, the key to their success is often repetition, practice frequency. And I believe that we need to view worship and spiritual formation in the same way. This right here, what we are doing this morning, this matters. And and, and I believe that it is forming us. I see this as our training ground, honestly, as, as our practice facility, what we're doing right now. Gathering as a community to worship is powerfully formative. And just like Paul reminds us, as the Spirit of the Lord works within us, we become more and more like Him. I remember in my early 20s, a few years ago, um, I'm a lot older than y'all think I am, but I remember I was in this worship service and um, I wasn't leading, I was just participating, and we were singing this song that was very declarative in nature. Okay, we were making these commitments by what we sang. And I remember some of the lyrics. We were, we were declaring, I will worship you with all my heart. I will live for you. I will, I will give. I will praise. I will, I will, I will. Very declarative in nature. And in that moment, something clicked. When it comes to worship and spiritual formation, something came in to focus for me. If I'm going to make these declarative statements, and and we make these with a lot of grace and mercy, right? These statements we make, it's our aim as we grow more and more like Christ, okay? But if I'm going to make these statements, I had better aim to live out these truths. Otherwise, they're just empty words. And so if I say, I will worship you, I will live for you, then I need to ask myself, Am I loving my neighbor? Am I treating my spouse the way God has called me to? Am I becoming more patient with my children? 
Ooh, that's, that hits home. Am I defending the cause of, of the oppressed and the marginalized, the least of these? Ultimately, I have to ask myself, am I living out my worship? You see, as we are formed more and more into the likeness of Christ, we begin to change. Our actions become more Christ-like. Our thoughts begin to, to reflect God's thoughts. We begin desiring what he desires. See, we are being formed. And as the world takes notice, the kingdom of God advances more and more and more. And the glory of the Lord continues to shine through. In 1914, shortly after the Titanic sank, Congress convened a hearing to discern what happened in another nautical tragedy. The steamship Monroe was rammed by the merchant vessel Nantucket and eventually sank. 41 sailors lost their lives. And throughout the course of the trial, the New York Times reported that Captain Edward Johnson navigated the Monroe with a steering compass that deviated as much as two degrees from the standard magnetic compass. He said the instrument was sufficiently true to run the ship and that it was the custom of masters in the coastwise trade to use such compasses. But his steering compass had never been adjusted in the one year he was the master of the Monroe. The Times later recorded a heartrending picture when the two captains met, clasped hands, and sobbed on each other's shoulders. The sobs of these two burly sailors served as a moving reminder of the tragic consequences of misorientation. And this is our reminder. Our heart is like a compass that we need to regularly calibrate and tune to our magnetic north, to our creator. That is why we worship. That is why we come together, and it is why this matters. I'm going to invite our, our worship team this morning uh, back to the stage because we do have uh, a time where we get to spend together in response and to lift up our praise to the Lord. And friends, I'll just reiterate, I am so excited for this series. I really am. I, I am expectant of what this can be. I know there are people within our church body that have been praying for these four weeks in anticipation of what God is going to do in our hearts and in our minds collectively. And it's not just these four weeks that excite me. It's the months and the years to come as we journey together as worshipers. I know we've only scratched the surface this morning, but, but I can't wait for what's to come. I was asked this week in a random conversation what my vision for worship is for Grace Fishers. And I suppose that's, that's a fair question. And I don't remember exactly what, what I said, but I think it was something, something like this. My hope and, and some of my thoughts and my prayer is that Grace Fishers would be known as a worshiping community. 
simply stated that Grace Fishers would be known as a worshiping community, both inside these walls and outside these walls. And my hope, my hope is that when someone walks into our midst, when someone experiences any aspect of worship at Grace Fishers, whether they know Jesus or not, my hope is that when they walk away, they will echo the words of 1 Corinthians 14 and exclaim, God is truly among you. That is my hope. That is my prayer. Would you pray with me? Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, tune our hearts to be more like yours. Form us and transform us by your grace and your power. Shape and mold us to look more like Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.